Hello and welcome back to the Killer Kind Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Miller, as always. Thank you so much for being here today. I have got an unsolved case for you, which is, as you may know, not something I normally do, but this is one I had to share with you guys. So let's help spread the word about this case and try to get it solved, shall we? Today we're talking about the disappearance turned murder of a 17-year-old kid. A kid who found himself walking alone in the early morning hours. But why was he alone and who did he run into that night? Well, let's dive into the case and try to find out who could have committed such an unspeakable crime. Today we're talking about the murder of Blake Chapel. Blake Tyler Chapel was born on February 7th, 1994. Blake was described as a one-of-a-kind teenager back in 2011, where our case takes place today. He was known to be the kind of person who was friends with everyone and that everyone loved to be around. He was hilarious with an infectious laugh, easygoing, was always willing to help people that he cared about, and he always saw the best in everyone. Blake also loved racing his dirt bike and skateboarding. He loved to draw and to play Guitar Hero, and he just loved music in general. He really seemed like the nicest and the most fun-loving kid there was. Growing up, it was just him and his mom, Melissa Chapel. From what I understand, Blake didn't meet his dad until he was 10 years old. I wasn't able to find anything that mentioned that they had a close relationship after meeting or anything like that, so I think it still pretty much just remained him and his mom. And the two were very, very close. However, Melissa did struggle to make ends meet for them. In 2007, Blake's mom was disabled following a stroke. She had been working as a retail store manager, but this incident left her completely out of work. Sadly, there was about a three-month period where the two were homeless. Blake wrote about his experience in a paper he wrote for school that he titled Poverty where he explained how grateful he is for the things that he has now and feels sympathy for those that have found themselves in similar situations. And here's a little snippet of that essay. He said, People in this world live day to day, cold, hungry, and alone, while most of us flaunt our money and spend it like it's nothing. I do not understand it. He said, Don't get me wrong. Some people choose to make the decisions which landed them in that kind of situation. But others, others don't choose to be that way. Believe it or not, I used to be poor. I lived for three months without a house, without a sense of stability and security, stuck in a horrible dream where everything was taken from me. I'm thankful for everything I have now. I have a sense of sympathy for those who have to live every single day like I had to. In 2011, Blake and his mom moved from Jonesboro, Georgia to Noonan, We'll get into why the two had to move here shortly, but Noonan was where Melissa's parents were from, so it was an easy transition back to her hometown. And being the kind of guy Blake was, he quickly made friends at East Coweta High School in nearby Sharpsburg. One way he got to know everyone was when he started selling monster energy drinks at the school. He realized the school vending machines were missing this type of drink option, so he took it upon himself to go to the local convenience stores, buy what he could, and then he would turn around and sell them at school at a higher price, which is 
funny, but very smart. Blake would also take the tabs off the top of the cans and turn them into Monster in exchange for prizes. His mom said that he was definitely a budding entrepreneur. Shortly after starting the 2011 school year, Blake met and started dating a beautiful young girl named Ryan. So it only made sense that the two would attend the fall homecoming dance together. And that brings us to the night of Saturday, October the 15th. Blake and Ryan are set to attend the homecoming dance. She has bought a beautiful dress and Blake has got a dress shirt and pants. But the day of, he realizes he doesn't have a tie. So he and his mom go to Kohl's to find a tie that matches Ryan's dress. After a few text exchanges between the young couple, they find the perfect one. However, Blake and his mom quickly realize that neither one of them know how to tie the tie, so one of the Coles employees ends up tying it for him. Such a wholesome moment. But now, Blake is ready for the dance. So Blake and Melissa head over to Ryan's house, which is in a neighborhood off of Avondale Circle and East Noonan. Everyone is taking pictures of the young couple, you know, your typical high school dance pictures. Then the plan was for Ryan's mom, Shannon, to be their chauffeur for the night, since it looked like neither one of them had a car of their own. Blake was 17, and I'm pretty sure Ryan was as well. But either way, the two didn't have a car, so Shannon was going to drive them around for the night. So at 5.30, Ryan's mom drove the two to Noonan Crossings to have dinner at a restaurant called Tokyo's. They both had a love for sushi, so this is one of their favorite places to go. At 7 p.m., Shannon picked them both back up, and from what I can tell, it wasn't quite time for the dance yet, so they all went back to Ryan's house, and the two watched a little bit of a movie before heading off to enjoy the homecoming dance. Once there, the two had a blast. Both Ryan and Blake said they had so much fun. Melissa said that her son texted her saying it was one of the best nights of his life. At 10.30 p.m., Shannon was back to pick up the young couple, so the two head back to Ryan's house to finish the movie they had started earlier, and just to hang out a little bit longer. Once the movie was over, it was time for Blake to leave. Now, originally the plan was for him to go back home after this. However, he decided he wanted to go stay the night at his friend Austin's house. And in order to stay at Austin's, he needed to call his mom and get permission because Ryan's mom would have to drive him there, obviously. Side note, Blake's phone was a little weird. I I don't know why, but apparently he couldn't make phone calls from his cell phone. He could only text, which I worry is part of the problem with this case, but we'll get into that. So he ends up using someone else's phone and calls his mom to ask to see if he could stay the night at his friend Austin's. His mom was very hesitant due to an issue that the issue that caused them to move to Noonan in the first place, which I promise we'll get into. Apparently his mom didn't want him staying the night anywhere. He was barely let out of the house alone and it had been that way for about four months now. However, she did eventually reluctantly say that it was okay. As long as he stayed there the entire night and promised not to leave. Blake promised his mom he wouldn't go anywhere and she agreed to let him stay. So Ryan's mom drove Blake to his friend Austin's who lived near Highwoods Parkway, roughly three miles from Ryan's house. So Blake gets to Austin's house sometime around 1130 p.m. or so. And the two decide to go to a nearby BP gas station to try and buy some cigarettes, (laughs) as teenagers would. 
Already he's not keeping his word though to his mom, which that's not too surprising. We were all teenagers once, right? Sorry, mom, if you're listening, but the walk to and from the gas station was fine. The gas station wasn't even open. So they just had to turn right back around and go back home. After returning to Austin's house, the two stay up just texting friends and just hanging out for a couple hours. Then ultimately they decide to go to bed. However, shortly after they do this, they go their separate ways. Blake comes back into Austin's room and says that he's actually going to walk to Ryan's house, which is odd to me because it's like, that's an hour long walk. I mean, it's a teenage love situation and all, but an hour at like 2 a.m. just seems a little bit extreme. Before leaving, Austin offers Blake his jacket and gives him his house key so he can get back in when he gets back. And again, everything goes smoothly. Blake texts Ryan at about 2 a.m. or so saying that he's planning on coming back to her house soon. And at 4.30 a.m., he says he's almost there. So he probably didn't end up leaving Austin's until what, like 3 or 3.30 or so. Ryan confirms that Blake made it to her house shortly after 4.30. She said he snuck in through her bedroom window. Ryan said the two just hung out in her bed, just talking about their day and talking about how much fun they had at the dance. But unfortunately, Blake was caught by Ryan's grandmother just 30 minutes later, about 5 a.m. Blake attempts to hide under the covers, but it obviously doesn't work. And she tells Ryan's mom, who said that she was going to call his mom. So Blake books it. (laughs) He climbs back out of Ryan's window and leaves. He immediately though starts texting Ryan, just apologizing for even putting her in that position and for getting her in trouble. At the same time, Ryan's mom was texting him through her daughter's phone, I believe. And Blake was again, just apologetic for coming over without permission and saying that he was so sorry that it would never happen again. Not something that he should have done, you know, that sort of thing. Just apologizing profusely. Eventually, Ryan's mom was like, look, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Just don't let it happen again. So Blake is making his way back to Austin's. When he left, he was wearing black pants and a white Aeropostale hoodie. And at around 530 a.m., 30 minutes after he left, he is texting Ryan saying how cold it is out there. And Blake also mentions that he's somewhere near a bridge. And at this time, he says, quote, I'm being pulled over by a police officer, which the wording is odd because he should have still been on foot at this point. And saying that you're being pulled over insinuates you're in a vehicle of some sort. But I'm sure he just worded it like that, but meant he was just being stopped by a cop. We may never know, but anyways, he said the officer asked for his ID and asks where he's headed. Blake complies and then says the officer gave him this long lecture about being out past curfew and all of that. But according to Ryan, Blake said everything was fine and he was free to go. However, after this incident, Blake stopped texting. There was no further communication past this point. At 6.30 a.m., Ryan's mom went back into her daughter's room to ask about Blake to make sure that he made it home or back to Austin's. But Ryan said that she hadn't heard from him since about 5.30. So they kind of brushed it off for a little bit. And by 9.30, they still hadn't heard from Blake. So they realized there might be cause for concern at this point. So Ryan and Shannon call Austin to see if he maybe got back to his friend's house and just crashed, right? 
But Austin said no. He looked around his house looking for Blake to make sure that he didn't like come in and he didn't notice. But he was nowhere to be found. Plus, there was nothing that indicated Blake had made it back that night at all. There was no sign of him coming back to the house. So at this point, all three of them are worried about the 17-year-old. Ryan and her mom decide to drive along the route Blake could have taken back to Austin's. Starting off, Blake would have had to go up Mary Freeman Road. Then he would have either had to take Lower Fayetteville Road or Summer Grove Parkway to get back to Austin's. And Summer Grove was the more reasonable route, the more obvious route. But again, there's multiple ways he could have gone. So they were checking both. At some point, the mom and daughter pick up Austin and they all drive both routes together looking for Blake. Now, along Summer Grove Parkway is a golf course. It's the Summer Grove Golf Club. So Austin hops out to look down the different trails that Blake could have wandered down, but there again was no sign of Blake. Now, Ryan and Blake did have plans at 11 a.m. that Sunday morning, so the hope at this point was that he would at least reach out by then. Now, Ryan's dad, Matt, joined in on the search as well after he got back from the hunting club, preparing for hunting season. (laughs) Sometime after 11 a.m., while the group was out searching, Austin supposedly flagged down a cop car in the area and told the officer they were looking for his missing friend. And after talking to him, the officer decides to call Blake's mom to tell her that her son is missing. And that's when an official missing persons report was filed. Once the report was filed and all of the information up until that point was given to authorities, they definitely look into Blake's run-in with a police officer. That would easily help them determine where Blake was at at 5.30 a.m. when this took place and obviously give them a good starting point to look at. However, they were unable to see any record of Blake being stopped or pulled over that night. It is standard practice for a police officer in any city, county, anywhere, to make note when they are about to stop someone, anyone at all. So if this had happened, it should have been on record in their system, but it wasn't. So who was Blake talking to? Was it a cop or was it someone possibly impersonating a police officer? At some point during the initial search, I don't know if the police officer was with the family or not, but Austin went to the nearby gas station to see if Blake could have been there. It would have been the same ones that the boy had went to shortly before midnight. Austin asked the clerk if he had seen Blake and showing him a picture of the teenager to help jog his memory. And the clerk said that he had seen him at about 7.30 a.m. that morning. Blake supposedly walked up to the clerk, who was outside the gas station at the time, and he asked him when they would be opening. The clerk told him that they weren't going to be opening until 8 a.m. So that's when he said Blake turned around and walked off. There was one more reported sighting of Blake. Someone at a nearby Quick Trip gas station said they saw him there as well. Now, I wasn't able to find any details on that sighting in particular, just that someone saw him. And neither of these reported sightings have been confirmed by police. So just keep that in mind. After the two witnesses reported their sightings, the case pretty much goes cold for a short period of time. And at first, Ryan and a few others, including the police officers, were starting to consider the possibility that he might have just run away. Normally, I would completely dog this theory, but you see, Blake had an upcoming court date. 
He was due to appear in court on October 24th. So let's get into this, shall we? Why was such a nice 17-year-old scheduled to appear in court? Well, this was due to an incident that took place earlier that year. In May 2011, Blake had recently broken up with his girlfriend at the time, not Ryan. This was another girl. This was before he moved to the Noonan area as well. So Blake and his girlfriend break up. She came from a rough home and had really been relying on Blake a lot, emotionally and just in general. About a week after the two broke up, Blake's mom, Melissa, gets a phone call from this girl and she is in tears and she asks where Blake is. Now, Melissa said she did not want to get involved in her son's breakup or any kind of drama related to it. So she lies to the girl and tells her that she doesn't know where her son is or at least doesn't give him, give her his location. A short time later, Melissa gets another phone call and this time it's from the girl's mom saying that her daughter has run away from home and she believes she was going to find Blake. So the mom was asking if Melissa had seen her daughter or knew anything at all. And and Melissa tells her, look, I I just talked to her on the phone about 30 minutes ago. I didn't want her to tell her where Blake was, so I didn't, basically. She then proceeds to give Blake's real location, thinking that maybe the girl could have found where Blake was and met him there, and so that the young girl could be brought back home safely. So Blake was actually at the Hunter Ridge trailer park, hanging out with several local kids. Once the girl's mom gets the information, she apparently drives over there and confronts Blake. Now, his ex-girlfriend is not there, but he's being questioned about where she is. He obviously explains that he doesn't know where she's at, so the mom leaves. After leaving, this woman calls Melissa again and tells her that her son better not be hiding her daughter. She is fired up and goes off on Melissa about Blake. And I'm sure things got a little heated between the both of them at that point. After finding out that this girl had run away, Blake left the trailer park and started riding around on his bike looking for her. He does end up finding her sitting on a park bench by herself. And the two talk for a second and he tells her to get on the back of his bike so he can take her back home. Now, There are several people still at the trailer park where Blake was just hanging out. Most, if not all of them, know Blake and are friends with him. So when he took off to find this girl, a few of these were calling or at least communicating somehow with Blake's mom, saying that apparently after Blake left, this girl's stepdad shows up to the trailer park and walks over to the group of teenagers hanging out. Supposedly, he gets out of the car with a couple of other grown men He holds up his shirt to reveal a gun in his waistband. He asks the kids where Blake is, saying he has something for him, which is insane, but it gets worse. From what I understand, they tell the stepdad that he just took off to go look for his stepdaughter, and they don't know where he went. But eventually, everything comes to a head. The stepdad ends up finding Blake and this girl riding on Blake's bike. The stepdad gets out of his car and comes over to the two. The girl gets off the bike and Blake is still sitting there, likely starting to explain what's going on. But without further warning, the stepdad pushes Blake off the bike. 
He then pistol whips him, and as he's down on the ground, he starts repeatedly hitting Blake in the head. He kicks him in the ribs and just hits him all over. After physically assaulting the 17-year-old, he grabs his stepdaughter, throws her in the trunk. Now, she has since said that did not happen, but there are many other witnesses that said that it did. So she's likely just covering for him. I mean, they were in a very public place. There were many eyewitnesses. So the dad and stepdaughter take off, and that just leaves Blake on the ground, beaten and bruised. Some of his friends called his mom and 911 and explained that he was just attacked by the girl's stepdad. His friends literally had to pick him up and carry him to a nearby house. I assume home of one of his friends. And when the EMS gets there, they tell him that he is in bad shape and he needs to get to a hospital. And they're concerned that at the very least, he has a concussion. Sadly, since his mom wasn't employed and likely didn't have any health insurance, Blake refused to go to the hospital because he was worried about how much it would cost. Melissa takes her son home and she helps nurse him back to health. Now, it was during one of these days that Blake and his mom were at the house and she was taking care of him that Blake mentions his ex-girlfriend was wearing all of his clothes when he found her on the park bench. He said these were clothes that he had never given to her, so it didn't make sense as to how she could have gotten all of his clothes. He said it was starting to feel like this was all some sort of setup to lure him out so her stepdad could attack him, essentially to get back at him maybe for breaking up with her. During this conversation, Melissa recalled how the girlfriend had come by the house a few days prior to this when Blake was not there, saying that she had some stuff that belonged to Blake and that he had some things of hers as well. Not thinking anything of it, Melissa allows the young girl to go back in Blake's room and get her things. So this leads them both to believe that the girl took clothes from his room instead of doing what she said she was going to do, which is weird doesn't really make much sense, honestly, but nonetheless, Melissa and Blake wanted to press charges against the stepdad, rightfully so. So Melissa calls the police department and files the report. She gave the contact information for the ex-girlfriend's mom and stepfather, and she was told there would be an investigator assigned to the case, and that person will be reaching out soon to discuss everything. So, the next day rolls around, and Melissa gets a phone call from someone claiming to be an investigator. The investigator asks Melissa to recount the event that took place and just to explain everything that's happened before and since then. And she does. She tells the investigator that since that day, she found out that the stepdad went back to the same area where the attack took place, and he threatened all of the eyewitnesses. Now, let me pause and say, I can't confirm where the attack took place it's clear Blake's friends were there so I'm almost wondering if the two went back to the trailer park or at least close by the trailer park because the report said that the dad went back to the trailer park and threatened all of the kids there so I assume that's where everything took place but either way he threatens a bunch of teenagers basically telling them that if they say anything to the police or to anyone that he would do to them what he did to Blake And after Melissa says this to the investigator on the phone, he responds by saying, well, why would he do that? Almost out of character, like why would an investigator have that sort of reaction? Melissa remembers it being odd, but didn't really think anything of it at the time. 
So the conversation ends soon after, and Melissa is just told to wait, and they would get to work on the case. However, two weeks go by, and there's no update. That was until she gets a phone call from the Jonesboro Police Department, and the person on the other end of the call claims to be the investigator on the case. And he actually apologizes for taking so long to call her. And she's like, wait, what? (laughs) I spoke to an investigator two weeks ago. And this guy says, that doesn't make any sense. I'm the only investigator on the case. Nobody else should have reached out to you yet. I don't know who you could have possibly spoken to. So Melissa tells the investigator the whole story, basically again, told him everything she had told the other guy. She also proceeds to tell him that a few days after the attack that she got in line behind the stepdad at a gas station and he was talking to someone about the attack and basically bragging about how he beat this kid up and broke his hand. Turns out there was video and audio captured of this entire conversation. How heartbreaking for Melissa to have to stand there and listen to that. It is disturbing. This man is a psychopath. So, sorry, (laughs) when Melissa gets off the phone with the investigator, the real investigator, she reaches out to her phone company and gets a copy of her call log. She finds the number the first, quote, investigator called her from and come to find out it was the freaking stepdad's phone number. Again, what a raging psycho. You can't pretend to be a police officer or investigator. That is impersonation of a police officer. That's literally illegal. And from what I understand, Melissa did report this. She ended up calling that same investigator back and telling him about it. But nothing was ever done about that. Now, approximately three weeks after her conversation with the real investigator, he calls her again. And he tells her that he wants her and Blake to come down to the Jonesboro Police Department to, quote, close the case up. Which to her made no sense because they were pressing charges. Why were they trying to close the case? It was pretty clear at this point that nothing had been done. So Melissa planned to go down there with Blake to discuss everything. But when the two get there, two guys take Blake into essentially an interrogation room without his mom. He asks if his mom can come too. And they're like, no, you can handle this on your own. You're fine. So supposedly they aggressively slap a visitor sticker on his chest and then start asking him about the attack. After Blake tells them in everything, one of them come back out to talk to Melissa. And according to her, she said the men start laughing and says Blake lied to them about everything. They completely dismiss him, which is disgusting. But unfortunately, it gets worse. While at the police department, they arrest Blake on charges of custodial interference. The ex-girlfriend family apparently pushed for the charge against Blake. Of course they did. They explained that because he was 17, he was basically an adult and his ex-girlfriend was 16. And because she ran away to him that day that he was interfering with custody of a minor, which is just insane. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But this wasn't a light charge. He spent 16 days in jail over this. While he was in jail, he and his mom were trying to raise money for the bond, which he was eventually released. But once he got out, 
His court date was set for October 24th, as we know. Sadly, things do not stop there. Once Blake was let out of jail, the ex-girlfriend's family made Melissa and Blake's life hell. They stalked them both. Melissa said that one morning she woke up to bright, shining lights in their home at around 3 a.m. They had animals of theirs killed. And I mean, there is no better way to put it, but they were going through hell because of this psychotic family. (laughs) They certainly didn't want to report any of this to the police because, as we know, they couldn't be trusted. I mean, they didn't trust them, and why would they? So they ultimately decide just to move. And that's why they had to move to the Noonan area. Because they didn't feel safe in their own home or their own community, which is just terrible. Not only that, Melissa told Blake not to tell his friends they were moving, thinking that this girl's family would find them and harass them some more, or worse. However, according to Melissa, the girl's family did find them, and they did continue to harass them. Immediately following the initial attack, Melissa said that Blake shut down. He developed selective mutism. I mean, this poor kid was traumatized. And I'm wondering, too, if he had some sort of PTSD after this. The whole situation was horrifying for Blake and his mom, too. To see her son go through something like that had to be just so hard. As a mom, I can't even imagine. And then, less than six months later, her son is gone. Her son goes missing after she finally allows him to spend the night at a friend's house. After barely leaving him alone, or excuse me, after barely letting him leave the house the last six months, I can't imagine what she was going through at the time and what she likely is still going through. Now, Blake did have the court date set for October 24th, so there was hope that Blake would turn up after the court date passed, thinking he might just be trying to avoid that. However, Blake was not seen alive again. The stepdad of his ex-girlfriend claims the charges has since been dropped for Blake, but in the same breath he says, unless I see his face again. So even though this kid is missing, he was still threatening him. Since Blake's disappearance, investigators have spoken to over 50 people, kids that attended the homecoming dance, anybody and everybody in Blake's life, including the ex-girlfriend and her family, and including Ryan's family. Ryan's house was searched as well, obviously, because besides the suspicious police officer, Ryan, her mom, and grandmother were one of the last ones to see Blake. Not to mention, their last interaction wasn't so pleasant. (laughs) On top of the search of Ryan's home, several searches were conducted in and around the Noonan area, and especially the routes Blake could have taken that night. But ultimately, every interview and every search led to a dead end. Five weeks after Blake disappeared, his mom received a weird phone call from a blocked number. The caller on the other end never said a word. However, Melissa said she could hear the faint sound of a TV on in the background. The call went on like this for five minutes. The caller did not say a word, but Melissa said she kept asking who this was And then eventually she started asking if it was Blake and just kept repeating his name over and over. 
Eventually, she ended the call because she said she couldn't take it anymore. Melissa said she strongly believes that whoever called her that day either knew Blake or knew where he was. She knows that if it was Blake, he would have said something if he could. The case then goes quiet for two straight months until sadly, Blake's remains were found. Two individuals called to report a body floating in a creek in the Summer Grove neighborhood. When police arrived, they found a young male floating face down in the creek. Strangely, only wearing underwear and an undershirt. The body itself had started to turn black due to decomposition, and they were able to identify the body as that of Blake Chapel based on the two lower lip piercings and the chest tattoo the 17-year-old was known to have. The state his body was in, however, only left more questions. Where were the rest of his clothes, first and foremost? His cell phone was nowhere to be found. His wallet was nowhere to be found. I mean, this area had been searched several times because the Summer Grove area was definitely the route most people believed he would have taken. If Blake or any of his things had been there these last two months, everyone involved in the countless searches knew without a doubt that they would have spotted something. Not only that, it is believed that this was the last known spot he was at, based on his text to Ryan. So one of the last things he said before being, quote, pulled over by this supposed police officer was that he was on or near a bridge, which is likely the bridge that crossed over this creek. It makes zero sense that Blake would have been there the entire time because this specific creek and the area around it was the target of the search efforts. And based on the route he would have taken and the fact that he had been walking about 30 minutes, if you were to look it up, you would notice that he should have been at the bridge crossing over this creek at that 30-minute mark on his walk. Now you're probably wondering, how long was his body in the creek? So medical examiners needed to determine this if the decomposition timeline matches how long he's been missing. And they determined that Blake's body had only been in the water about a week, if that. Not only that, they determined that his cause of death was homicide. Blake had died from a gunshot wound to the head. Cause of death was the only part of the autopsy that was released to the public, which leads you to believe what other markings, if any, were on his body. Had he been beat up? Did he have any other injuries? Or was it just the gunshot wound? And if it was a gunshot wound to the head that killed the 17-year-old, was he shot just the one time or was he shot multiple times? Investigators have stated that they are withholding a lot of the information about the autopsy because it's the thing that only the killer would know, which definitely leads me to believe this was more than just a single gunshot wound. Personally, I would hope that it wasn't more than that because we always hope that if someone is killed tragically like this, that it's done quickly and that they didn't suffer. But this case is too bizarre to think that there isn't more to it. Apparently, Blake's mom knows just as much as we do. She said she hasn't even been told any more than what was released to the public. She obviously wants to know what other injuries he has to see if there is a sign that he was held somewhere, like maybe he was tied up or something along those lines for the 
the first two months. At this point, the concern is since his body was left in the creek, a lot of the physical evidence that could have been found, like fingerprints and DNA, are just gone. So I get police are just hanging on to everything they can, like the other injuries, because that's all they have to go on. There is no crime scene. There is no other evidence besides his body. They have no idea where Blake could have been killed. So that's all they have. Shortly after Blake's remains were discovered, the Noonan Police Department offered a $20,000 reward, the largest that the city has ever offered. Additionally, in September 2021, the police department launched an Unsolved Crimes page on their website with the hopes of spreading awareness for Blake's murder along with a handful of others. I will definitely leave a link to that page in the show notes for today's episode. Now, this case is more than 10 years old at this point, and there have since been multiple rumors and theories. The first being Ryan's family. I mentioned they were questioned, and their house was practically turned upside down looking for evidence. Everyone in her family was cleared as a suspect. However, there are people out there that believe it was suspicious that the dad was out at the hunting club that morning. Being from the South myself, I don't find that too suspicious, and Two, Melissa has said their entire family has gone above and beyond in the search for Blake, as well as being there for Melissa since his death. Ryan's mom is very upset with herself that she didn't just go pick him up and make sure he got to where he was going safely. So if Melissa believes they didn't have anything to do with it, then so do I. Now, the second theory, and my personal favorite, is the whole stepdad situation. The ex-girlfriend's stepdad, that is. He sounds like a piece of crap, no better way to put it, even if he had nothing to do with Blake's death. Noonan police have said that he was questioned and cleared as a suspect, but I don't know how much I can believe that because of how he was never charged for assaulting Blake or impersonating a police officer. On top of that, he clearly harassed Blake and his mom, although they weren't able to file complaints or any kind of reports against him or his family because of the way Blake and Melissa were basically laughed at after the assault and accused of lying about everything. I don't blame I don't blame Melissa for not filing reports after that. Clearly, she wasn't going to get any help from the police. So what was the point? And that's why I have a hard time believing the stepdad was questioned properly. Just saying. Now, Deputy Chief Riggs has since stated that two potential sus- suspects have been cleared and that a third suspect quote, cannot be placed in Coweta County at the time of the killing. The third suspect thing confuses me. I don't know who that could be. I mean, you could argue that the first suspect was Ryan's mom or dad, and the second was obviously the ex-girlfriend's stepdad, but who could have been the third? When Lieutenant Chris Robinson took over the case in 2019, he basically said they can't say for sure how long Blake's body was in the creek and that the physical evidence is very limited. So it really seems like in 2019 they didn't have any more evidence than they did within the first year of Blake's death. Blake's mom believes that her son was either kidnapped or went with someone willingly. She believes he was held hostage for weeks, then ultimately killed somewhere, then taken to the creek and dumped. Noonan police haven't said whether or not they believe this theory as well, but they have said he was killed somewhere else and dumped in the creek based on the fact there is no 
blood. There's been no blood found in the area, even after the numerous searches. So if you or anyone you know has information regarding Blake's death, please call Crime Stoppers of Greater Atlanta at 404-577-TIPS, which is 404-577-8477. Or you can call the Noonan Police Department's tip line at 770-254-2350. You can also send your tip via email to unsolvedhomicide at cityofnoonan.org. The $20,000 reward is still in place for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for Blake Chapel's death. And that is the case of Blake Chapel. I'm sure you guys know <laughs> I think the stepdad had something to do with it. But I did hear someone say that the only issue with the stepdad theory is that Blake's movements that night were only known to a couple of people and everything seemed to happen very last minute. So had the stepdad or someone he knew been stalking Blake, he would have been stalking him for a long time. Plus, he would have had the perfect opportunity to attack Blake during his first walk from Austin's to Ryan's. Why wait until he's leaving Ryan's? Plus, he was only at Ryan's for about 30 minutes before he got busted. So it's not like the stepdad would have known where to find Blake. And even if he did, why didn't he grab him on that first walk from his friend's house? So although the stepdad is my number one suspect personally, there are still holes in that theory. I mean, it's certainly possible that whoever this random police officer was that nobody has record of had something to do with it. Or it could have been the stepdad that was impersonating police officer. But I would think that Blake would know him. So maybe it was somebody he knew. I don't know. This this case is confusing to me. But as always, I want you to share your thoughts. Who do you think did it? Do you think it was somebody he knew? Or was it an evil stranger? I want to thank everyone for listening to today's episode and being patient with me in these last few episodes. I have been slacking. It feels like life has been so busy and I have been exhausted. So the podcast has definitely been on the back burner and I hate that. I do plan on taking a break in the summer, just FYI, possibly for the month of June, just because I know that's going to be a busy month. So it's already been hard for me to get episodes out the last couple weeks. It's definitely going to be hard that month, but I will kind of give more details and say, you know, everything for sure. Um, as soon as I know, but I don't want to leave you guys hanging. Plus I don't want to run myself ragged. So I'm going to try to work something out to where, you know, what's going to (laughs) happen. But for now, I will definitely be back here in two weeks, Lord willing, with a brand new episode until then stay safe. Bye guys.